Okay, let us uh, reconvene and, and push onwards to thinking about design in the context of evolution in two parts. Part one, thinking about Darwinism, and I, I mean that as a kind of philosophical term here, as a, an approach to the issue of um, diversity and complexity in biology. So Richard Dawkins, interestingly, he defines biology as the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Now he thinks that appearance is misleading, but he admits that this is the, the prima facie on the face of it appearance of reality. And think back to what we said earlier about the principle of credulity and the kind of argument that you can make there. Scientific discoveries beginning in the 1950s revealed the complex information processing systems and highly intricate molecular machines within cells, uh, thereby reviving discussions about design in biology that had uh, seemed to be um, largely within culture uh, dampened down uh, by 19th century theories of evolution and their uh, successors. Now, I think it's important here to keep in mind the distinction between the doctrine of creation and different models of creation that Christians hold because they have different interpretations of scripture and of the relevant scientific evidence and of course of how you should or should not put those two things together. Uh, so, just for example, a good place to start on that discussion would be a book like uh, Four Views on Creation, Evolution and Intelligent Design here in the, the Counterpoints series of books published by Zondervan. American Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga frames the issue like this. Starting from the doctrine of creation, we Christians recognise that are, there are many ways in which God could have created the living thing, thing, things he has in fact created. How, in fact, did he do it? Did it all happen just by ways of the working of the laws of physics? Or was there further divine activity? Well, we must look at the evidence and consider the probabilities as best we can. Well, what we might call the, the grand evolutionary story in our culture, or Darwinism, is not merely a scientific theory, one purporting to explain the origins and diversification of life on Earth over millions of years due to natural processes. Rather, it is really the, the naturalistic creation myth of Western culture. And I'm not using myth in the pejorative modern colloquial sense of an untrue story here, but rather uh, an, uh, a story that kind of encapsulates uh, a worldview uh, that tells you about the kind of reality you're living in. As Philip Johnson observed, Darwinism is the answer to a specific question that grows out of philosophical naturalism. How must creation have occurred if we assume that God had nothing to do with it? 
uh, nothing uh, kind of to add to the process. Um, we talked earlier about the, the Kalam argument and the fine-tuning argument, and you could grant all of that and then still say, and then evolution happened according to those laws of nature that God had designed, acting on the initial conditions that God had created, and then tell a story about life on Earth. But naturalism, of course, just by the essence of its, of its worldview, of its description of reality, has to ask the question, how must creation have occurred? Because we do assume that God had nothing to do with it, you see. Geneticist Richard Lewontin put it like this. He said, it's not that the methods of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our adherence to material cause to create a set of concepts that produce material explanations. No matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying, Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So this is coming very much from the worldview philosophy level here. Indeed, evolution is a term that means all sorts of things to all sorts of people and in different contexts. So. Um, as philosophers like to say, it depends what you mean by. <laughs> evolution means many things. Here's kind of the grand evolutionary story of our culture. It includes a number of points. The ancient earth hypothesis, the progress thesis, common ancestry, the universal common ancestry hypothesis, the neo-Darwinism, that is blind watchmaker hypothesis, and the naturalistic origins hypothesis. Ancient Earth hypothesis says that the Earth is about 4.54 billion years old. The progress thesis says that living things gradually increased in complexity over time, such that the history of life shows a general progression from the simplest type of prokaryotic single-celled organism to birds and mammals. The common ancestry hypothesis says that contemporary organisms are all descended from simpler ancestral organisms. The universal common ancestry hypothesis says that all living things descended from one original primordial organism. The neo-Darwinian, or blind watchmaker hypothesis, says that evolution happens through natural processes requiring no non-material or purposeful guidance. This philosophical idea, philosophical idea, motivates the scientific theory that mutation and selection, and perhaps other similarly undirected mechanisms, are able to explain the appearance of design in biology. 
Now, the, the neo-Darwinian so-called modern evolutionary synthesis combines Darwin's theory of adaptation by natural selection with the science of genetics. There is a more recent discussion between adherents of the, the modern evolutionary synthesis and of a so-called extended evolutionary synthesis who advocate additional explanations of evolution but ones that are still framed in terms of an unguided, unplanned process of physical chance and or necessity. So what you can think of as, as that Dawkins phrase, blind watchmaker, Darwinism at the philosophical level, remains the cornerstone of modern evolutionary theory, but there is this current heated debate about whether the, the modern synthesis of Darwin's idea plus genetics evolution through adaptation, genetic mutation and natural selection is a sufficient explanation of the data or you need other additional explanations, importantly. But they, can, they all tend to file under this idea of Darwinism, of it's an unplanned material process that's happening here. The naturalistic origins hypothesis says that life arose in the first place from non-life, from non-living things, by an unplanned and unguided physical process. Now, I happen to have described these hypotheses in what I personally consider, roughly speaking, a descending order of plausibility. From most probable to least probable. Quote Alvin Plantinger again, he says, there is excellent evidence for an ancient earth. There's less evidence, but still good evidence, in the fossil record for the progress thesis, the claim that there were bacteria before fish, fish before reptiles, reptiles before mammals, and mice before men. The naturalistic origins hypothesis, uh, he says, seems to me to be, for the most part, mere arrogant bluster. Given our present state of knowledge, I believe it vastly less probable on our present evidence than is its denial. So that's his assessment of the range of probabilities there, roughly speaking in, in line with my own. Christopher L. Rees, um, from the book uh, Three Views on Christianity and Science, says we must be cautious about equating our interpretations of scripture with scripture itself and our interpretations of nature with nature as it truly is. Thus, when we encounter apparent contradictions between the two, we should strive to ensure we are understanding and interpreting each accurately. In some cases, we may need to revisit our understanding of scripture. And in other cases, we may need to verify that we're grasping the facts about the natural world accurately and interpreting those facts properly. And I would add, particularly not interpreting those facts on the basis of bad philosophies of science that we talked about yesterday. So, Philosophers Michael Murray and Michael Ray 
put it this way. For the religious believer, the conflicts between science and religion will involve balancing evidence against evidence. This is not a faith versus reason kind of caricature, right? This is balancing evidence against evidence. The empirical evidence favouring scientific claims against the revelatory evidence favouring theological claims. The Christian critic of evolution might, for example, conclude that the evidence for an ancient earth seems quite strong, while the evidence for the naturalistic origin of life is in fact virtually non-existent. This then needs to be balanced against the evidence of revelation. How clear is it that the Bible teaches that the earth is young? Or that God directly intervened in the cosmos to bring about life? That debate, you know, is there to be had. I would simply say there is room for doubting our models of creation. As philosopher J.P. Morland says, there are sufficient problems in interpreting Genesis 1 and 2 to warrant caution in dogmatically holding that only one understanding is allowable by the text. I, I think that is, you know, just painfully obvious on the, on the basis that equally apparently sincere and informed Christians who know about sciences and philosophies and so on hold different interpretations of the text. <laughs> so it can't be an obvious straightforward matter or we'd all agree. Uh, it's a bit like that at the, b the beginning of the Bible and it's very much like that at the end of Revelation and interpretations of Revelation as well, right? There are things that we hold doctrinally in common that we can all agree on and there's lots of difference in details of interpretation. But there is also room, I would want to emphasise, for doubting Darwinism. The grand evolutionary story contains philosophical commitments that seem to derive from a naturalistic worldview. And these philosophical commitments can be replaced with other philosophical commitments, interpreting the same scientific data within a different worldview. For example, a theist might say that life arose from non-life by a guided physical process. It's open to them to say that, at the very least. It is possible to interpret the evolutionary story philosophically and the biblical story theologically so that they contradict each other. And it is possible to use this contradiction to argue against either the truth of evolution or the infallibility of scripture. But it's also possible to interpret the evolutionary story philosophically and the biblical story theologically in ways that make them compatible. And one can accept and reject evolution in different senses once we've distinguished these different claims from each other. 
For example, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection was only the points highlighted in orange. That's what Darwin put forward, the points in orange. Not the, the bits remaining in white. He didn't have anything to say about naturalistic origins. He speculated about it in a letter to a friend. But you know, maybe that would be possible to think about. But it wasn't part of the evolutionary theory he was putting. He was putting forward a theory about the diversification of life, given that you've got life. <laughs> he didn't say anything about universal common ancestry. He talked about this view of life with, you know, life breathed into one form or many at the beginning by the creator and then diversifying according to the laws of nature. It's possible to doubt some elements of the grand evolutionary story without doubting every element. So if someone asks me, do you believe in evolution? Depends what you mean by some bits yes, some bits no. Such doubts can be rationally motivated by theological, philosophical and or scientific reasons. For example, some atheists deny the idea of universal common ancestry whilst still accepting common ancestry on scientific grounds. Again, some atheists deny the sufficiency of the modern evolutionary synthesis on scientific grounds, part of the extended synthesis bunch, uh, but without denying the blind watchmaker thesis of there's no intentionality at operation here. So here's a quote from atheist uh, philosopher Jerry Fodor said phylogeny, that is common descent, could be true even if the adaptationism of Darwin's theory isn't. The classical Darwinist account of evolution as primarily driven by natural selection is in trouble on both conceptual and empirical grounds. An appreciable number of perfectly reasonable biologists, footnote, not you know, Bible-believing Christian scientists, those religious nutters, end footnote, you know. Uh, perfectly reasonable biologists are coming to think that the theory of natural selection can no longer be taken for granted. Well, Thomas Nagel, in a book that I mentioned yesterday, Mind and Cosmos, he argues that the dominant scientific consensus faces problems of probability that I believe are not taken seriously enough, both with respect to the evolution of life forms through accidental mutation and natural selection and with respect to the formation from dead matter of physical systems capable of such evolution. The more we learn about the intricacy of the genetic code and its control of the chemical processes of life, the harder those problems seem. <laughs>